It's good to see you and be with you again. I look forward every week to coming into this place, coming to church and fellowshipping with you and talking with you and laughing with you. It's one of the highlights of my week, and uh, so it's good to be here. I hope you are glad to be here, too. Are you glad you are saved this morning? Amen. Amen. That's good. Uh, I think you had your coffee. That's great. Uh, I did, too, so I'm feeling good. It was Folgers, though, so it wasn't the best coffee, but that's okay. Uh, It's okay. I'm glad you're here. Uh, You're in Mark chapter 2. I hope you'll look there again this morning as we seek to uh, continue in our series in this wonderful gospel of Mark. I have entitled this series, Unexpected, and I entitled it that for a reason. And I hope that you can kind of see that as we've been going through each of these little vignettes so far, seeing how Jesus acts as an unexpected Messiah to the people of first century uh, Jerusalem. I hope that's being communicated clearly because as Jesus comes onto the scene and is announcing who he is and what he is there for to do, and he is acting in ways that are less than kingly, even though he is, is somewhat coming out softly, as we said last week, that he remains anonymous most of the time, that he comes out in a way and acts in ways that aren't necessarily expected, especially if someone is saying that they are the king, that they are the promised king. And I think he, he likes to do that. Jesus in this gospel is really subverting all of the things we've come to know and expect a Messiah to do and a come, uh, to accomplish, to say and do. And I think that's precisely what Jesus was after. He wants to subvert our expectations. And he does so by visiting people and encountering people in places and telling them things that were surprising that, yes, were unexpected. And really that's my, as I've read through this gospel and I've studied it, that's sort of my summary of these words. It's, it's Jesus speaking unconventional words in unexpected places to unassuming people. And he's doing such in a way to really show forth who he is. He's the Messiah and the Messiah who lays down his life. Not who reigns from a throne of tyrannical dominance, but he reigns through death as we've already looked at. And here this morning as we enter chapter 2 of this glorious gospel, I think we have for us this morning two quick scenes in the first 17 verses that will show us, I think very clearly again, the unexpectedness of Jesus the Messiah, the Savior. Look again this morning. We're just going to walk through these verses. We're going to step through them, verses 1 through 17 of this second chapter, and really see all of these ways in which Jesus acts as this, again, unexpected Messiah. And here, firstly, in verses 1 through 12 this morning, I think we really see uh, a lesson about the Son who forgives. A lesson about the Son who forgives. Look at verse 1. And again, he, that is Jesus, entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noised that he was in the house. Jesus here is stepping back into the place where he was driven out of. If you remember from the end of chapter 1, he heals this leper and the leper refuses to obey Jesus' command to keep quiet about what has occurred. And he broadcasts broadly throughout all the realm in the region of what has happened with Jesus. And it's such that as it says in verse 45 of chapter 1, that he was not able to openly enter the city, but was without in desert places. 
And here again, we have Jesus. He's waited, so to speak, to, uh, for some of the hubbub, so to speak, to die down after some days, it says. And he's re-entered the city, trying to, again, continue his ministry. Most likely, he's back into the house of Simon and Peter. Uh, as we saw in verses 30 and 31, that he went to Simon and Peter's house. Or excuse me, Simon and Andrew's house. And it's believed again that that's the home that he's now in. And it says it was noised that he was in the house. There's a lot of buzz about Jesus. There's a lot of buzz again. As we noticed last week. There's a lot of buzz about this Jesus the miracle worker. This Jesus who heals. And it's spreading like wildfire. Jesus' reputation is spreading abroad all across the region. But of course, what do we find Jesus doing? Look at verse 2. And it says, And straightway, there's our word again, immediately many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Of course, we find Jesus doing what he always does. He's teaching and preaching the gospel. He's preaching God's words to them. And here is where we, I think we notice the first of three curious details about this text. I want you to kind of keep these in mind as we go through this message this morning. And the first of these curious details is this emphasis on Jesus' popularity. Notice again the phrases and the phrasing of this verse. There were so many people that were gathered together in this house in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. Mark is emphasizing, he's pushing into this idea that Jesus is becoming a popular figure. So much so that there was no space left in this small first century village house for them, not even in the space of the door, to see him. This house is so crowded. It's so packed full of people just looking to get a glimpse at Jesus. They were hoping to just get in proximity to him. They're standing outside the door just hoping to see him. And see, here we have the vividness of this crowd. We really get a sense of just the largeness of this crowd. And it almost seems to appear to us that it's coming from a description of an eyewitness, right? Only someone who was actually there would actually remember the largeness of the crowd or would perhaps emphasize the crowds that were there. Again, which kind of subtly hints at who was relaying these stories and these messages to the, uh, to the disciple John Mark, that is, the apostle Peter. It hints at that, right? You can kind of see that if, if what we believe the traditions about this gospel are true, that Peter is relaying these words to Mark and he's inscribing them from the sermons that Peter was preaching as we find them in Acts. It's John Mark who is, is, relaying these, is being relayed these stories by Peter. Peter is remembering the crowds. But watch what happens as Jesus teaches. Look at verse 3. And they come unto him, bringing one of the sick of the palsy, which was born of four, carried by four men. And when they could not come nigh unto him but for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
Here, there's a lot that goes on here in these, these, just these few verses. Jesus is preaching. He's, he's giving a sermon. And he's interrupted by these four friends who are just absolutely determined to get their friend in front of his feet. In front of his feet. They had no doubt heard this noise about Jesus as we go back to verse 1. That it was noise that Jesus was in the house. These four friends hear the noise about this miracle man from Galilee and he is here in this house. He's nearby. And so they are determined to get their palsy, their paralyzed friend in front of this miracle worker. Now we don't know what these men knew about Jesus. We don't know whether they really knew Jesus for who Jesus was or if, which is most likely true, they were just hoping to get some sort of healing out of this scene. But nevertheless, they are hopeful. They are hopeful of what's going to happen. And they are also persistent. They are persistent in, 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 in that they don't let the crowds, again, the crowds that is being emphasized by Mark, get in the way of what they are set out to do, which is to get their friend in front of this guy named Jesus. They're not deterred by it. They're not deterred by the press, it says in verse 4. Now, to understand the scene, most of these first century homes were of uh, clay or earthen construction. And they were mostly one story with a single roof. And they, there was a small staircase that would lead out to the top of the roof. It would be a flat roof construction. And these friends see the crowd, see the press that is at the door. And they're not able to get in. And yet they're not deterred by this. So they are resourceful. They climb up the stairs with their friend in hand and they bear him with them and they begin to cut open the roof. They begin to separate the roof so that they lower their friend down. Lower their friend at the feet of this miracle working man named Jesus. I think about that scene and I think about the friends who are bearing this palsied man. And I think about the fact that, uh, just imagine the scene, there's this teacher teaching, in the middle of it, the roof opens, and all of a sudden, these four men, perhaps with ropes or something, lowering one of their friends down, in the middle of a sermon. Imagine the, the inconvenience to these friends. It was not convenient for them to bear their friend in the hot climate of the day and weather and wait in a huge crowd. But it was also, imagine the impropriety. Because not only do they have to wait, not only do they have to wait in this, in this large crowd with this hot weather, but they have to risk breaking open a stranger's roof in order to get their friend in front of this one that they are hopeful of will provide healing. They determined that it was worth that risk. It was worth the inconvenience. It was worth being called foolish. But it was worth it. It was worth it to them to get their friend there. And that's where we get this second curious detail of our text. Again, it's this roof. I think, again, this points back to one who was there in the room. Only Because, again, Mark's gospel is the only gospel to include this detail about a roof being torn open. To get this palsied man in front of Jesus. 
And again, it points back to an eyewitness being there, looking up and seeing a roof opened up in front of their heads, above their heads. And why would it be memorable? Because it was Peter's roof. He remembers it. He was there sitting there. They're opening up my roof and lowering down some sick man to get in front of Jesus. He remembered. (laughs) But notice Jesus' response. Again, look at Jesus' response. He sees the display of, he calls it faith, of determination, of persistence of these men. And he says, son... Thy sins be forgiven thee. Can you imagine their faces? (laughs) I have to imagine that in some senses they were a little bit let down by those words of Jesus. That's not what they were expecting him to say. They weren't expecting him to give them some sort of religious thing in front of them. They were expecting him to heal this friend. They were going to him looking for his palsy to be cured, to be healed, to be gotten rid of. They were expecting Jesus perhaps to say, be healed and walk and rise. But instead he says, you are forgiven. Again, that's not what they were expecting. <laughs> Imagine there was a light, slight twinge of disappointment in their, in their faces. Because... Whereas these four friends were seeking for the healing of their friend, Jesus sought a deeper healing. He sought to heal this palsied man's soul. And he touches this deepest need first, such as why he says, Thy sins be forgiven. He deals with the more deadly problem first. That's what Christ always does. He is always dealing with the more deadly problem first. Forgiveness of sins. Yes, the palsy was something that was interminable. And it was something with which this man would always be fighting until death. And Jesus says, thy sins be forgiven. And this is why Jesus sought to demonstrate That he had not just come to clean up the world. He hadn't just come to fix the world's problems. These outside deficiencies. And and just change people's behaviors and views and fix their lives. Jesus had come to redeem and yes remake the world through his own resurrection. He's hinting at that here. Yes, this is an ailment with which you are afflicted, but there's a greater affliction that you are feeling. There's a greater affliction in the world that is beyond the ailments of the world. It's called sin, and Jesus has come to deal with it. But look again, watch what happens. Look at verse 5 again. He pronounces forgiveness for this one sick of the palsy. He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Leave it to the scribes and the Pharisees to always take exception at something Jesus is doing. Some good in which Jesus is pronouncing. And such is what they do here. They see this scene happening before their eyes. And they take exception at what Jesus is doing. These 
self-appointed experts and masters of the law, these authorities of religion in their day, were just full of hard hearts. You see that. You see the hardness of their hearts as they see this scene of this one sick of the palsy sitting there and they are unmoved by the forgiveness being announced. They are unshaken by the forgiveness being displayed. I think of, again, I think back to the roof. Perhaps they're annoyed that they have clay all over their shoulders and their hair. And they're just annoyed at the fact that there's so much dirt in the house now. Because this friend has been lowered before them. (laughs) They're perturbed by all of this commotion. Couldn't we just have listened to this lecture? (laughs) But they're only concerned with Jesus' heresy here. They, They claim that Jesus is acting as a heretic. Again, notice what they say. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive but God only? Their accusation is not verbal. They are speaking amongst themselves, it says. It says in verse 6. They are reasoning in their hearts. They are speaking together. They are whispering. They are whispering together. Talking to them each other. Who is this man to speak forgiveness How dare this common teacher uh, claim the place of God who alone can forgive sins. Here he is pronouncing forgiveness. He's committing blasphemy. And these scribes are frustrated by this. They're frustrated by the scene of Jesus pronouncing forgiveness. For them, it it was Jesus claiming deity. Again, notice their assertion. Who can forgive sins but God only? And this assertion is true. That God does forgive sins. But their implication is that they saw themselves as sort of the arbiters and the dispensers of that forgiveness. Who is this one to just announce being forgiven? Again, they're they're annoyed and they're frustrated by the fact that there's no ceremony being performed. You notice that? Jesus doesn't make this palsied man do a thing before he announces forgiveness to him. He just says, thy sins be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. He has that authority. He has the authority to announce that we are forgiven because he is our forgiveness. And such is what he is getting at here. Such is why we have this little scene of the Pharisees being frustrated. Because whereas they uh, saw that rituals and rites have to be performed and services have to be attained. And there must be some sort of ceremony before this forgiveness can become a reality. Jesus just says, you are forgiven. He announces it. Jesus uh, here really is just speaking forgiveness into existence. Where it did not exist before. And this is frustrating to the scribes. Because again they were the experts so called. The dispensers of this pardon. And here Jesus is frustrating that that way, that system. Again look at verse 8. And it says, And immediately when Jesus perceived... In his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. He said unto them. Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Or to say arise and take up thy bed and walk. 
But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine own house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed. You know, Jesus here is perceiving in their hearts what they're talking about, what they're reasoning, what they're thinking. Again, they're not speaking loudly and verbally for everyone in the room to hear. They're reasoning amongst themselves. And Jesus hears that. Again, he is God. He sees our hearts. And he calls them out on it. In front of everyone, he calls them out on what they're thinking. And notice Jesus' logic. Again, look at verse 9. What is easier? What is easier to say to this sick, this paralyzed man? Thy sins be forgiven or arise and walk. What's easier? And Jesus' logic is they're both equally ludicrous in the sense that in man's logic and in man's ability, they are both outside of it. They both require the same energy. They both require the same amount of breath. And both are equally outside of man's power. He says to these Pharisees, you cannot forgive sins and you cannot make this palsy man walk. And here... I, Jesus is saying, I have spoken to a much greater need. And then he says in verse 10, but to know, but that you might know who I am. And that I have both the power to forgive sins and the power over nature. I have the power over the spirit of man and over the nature of man. He commands this paralyzed man to get up and walk. And he does so, it says again, notice our word, and immediately he arose And took up the bed and went forth before them all. The crowd is astonished. They're stunned. That he has spoken forgiveness into existence. And he has spoken life and strength into existence for this palsied man. He does so by the power of his voice. And that's because that's who this man is. He's a teacher, but he's the creator. He can speak worlds into existence. And he can speak forgiveness into existence. He can speak healing into existence. And such is what he does here. Notice the crowd's reaction. In so much that they were all amazed... And glorified God saying, we never saw it on this fashion. We've never seen this before. We've never experienced this type of ministry before. It was entirely new. Entirely unexpected. And what this scene does, again, it proves Jesus' deity. He's saying, yes, I have the power over nature and over eternity. I can forgive because I have the authority to forgive. I'm not just a healer. I'm the savior. I'm the redeemer. I'm the maker of all things new. He is the son who forgives. But notice quickly in verses 13 through 17. Through the end of our text this morning. We have our second lesson here. And this is the lesson about the sinner's friend. Look at verse seven or 13. What Pastor Nathan read earlier. And he, that is Jesus, went forth again by the seaside. And all the multitude resorted unto him and he taught them. We find Jesus in another place. Again, as we noticed a couple weeks ago, that Mark likes to do this. He has time gaps in his, in his chapters in which there's a long sort of extended gap in scenes. And he just jumps and he's highlighting scenes of Jesus' actions. And such is what we have here. 
It jumps from the scene in the house and it jumps forth again. So now Jesus is beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And he's walking there and he has withdrawn from the crowds again. And yet he can't escape them. It says the multitude resorted unto him. They are coming and chasing after him. And here in verse 14, look at it. And he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom and said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. The scene relays the calling of Levi, who we know as the apostle Matthew. Jesus is inviting Matthew and he's inviting him to be a a follower, a a disciple of him along with the ones that he has already called, which we saw in chapter 1. But we have to see this scene for how shocking and how scandalizing as it truly is. Because, of course, we know that Matthew was a tax collector. It says he is sitting at the receipt of custom. He's collecting tolls and taxes. He is a publican. As we uh, have that phrase, that term throughout scripture. He's inviting a publican to come and follow him. That might not seem scandalous, but it should. Because you have to remember, remember some other famous publicans. Think of Zacchaeus and the wee little man who was very much hated by all around him. You see... Publicans in this day, tax collectors, are hated even more so than IRS agents. They're hated a lot more than that. They're notorious. Publicans in this day were notoriously dishonest men. They were despised by all that were around them. They were hated by everyone, their friends and their family. Publicans were often uh, nationals who were employed by the Roman government and they were employed there to raise and collect taxes in order to pay for the Roman occupying force that was uh, occupying the streets of Jerusalem. So think of it like this. It's as if your neighbor is working for the very same uh, enemy soldiers who were pillaging and raping your own town. And they're there and they're working for it. And they're not just skimming off of you. They're skimming off of Rome too. So publicans are hated. They're despised. By Rome they're viewed as weasels. Taking what is not theirs. And by the family that they have. They're viewed as traitors. They're taking and stealing and swiping uh, from their own people for their own profit. This is who a publican was. This is what they were known for. This is who Levi is. He's a tax collector. He's hated. He is despised. And this is who Jesus is calling to follow him. This is the last person that you would probably want to be on your team. If you're starting something new, starting something fresh, you're establishing a ministry as a teacher. You're not going to go out and call a social pariah to be on your team. You're not going to call an outcast. And such is what Jesus does. He calls an outcast to follow him. This is, again, a scene in which Jesus does the unexpected. But again, it gets even better. Watch, there's more. Look at verse 15. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. 
Here Jesus is found again in one of those unexpected places with uh, surrounded by unexpected company. And he's sitting, it says, at meat with them. He's eating and fellowshipping and communing with these, as it calls them, publicans and sinners. And this was a special, a sacred thing in this culture. We don't have the same affinity for food and for, and for meals that they had here in the first century. Eating a meal was a much more sacred thing than we have. They didn't have Pop-Tarts and McDonald's and Hamburger Helper to help them eat quicker, more efficiently. A meal in this day and age was a religious thing in the sense that it was about sharing each other's time. Sharing each other's hearts. It was a time in which you could share your life with this person. It was about a relationship. And such is what the scene is here. As Jesus is inviting and communing and connecting with these publicans and sinners. These hated outcast people. He's showing his willingness to be, as it says elsewhere, to be the friend of sinners. That is what Jesus is displaying here. And again... Notice the scribes. They always show up again and find exception at what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? Why is he here? What is he doing? Why is he consorting and conversing with these sorts of people? And notice that again, this is our third curious detail in the text. Notice who the scribes go to. It says, they said unto his disciples. They see this thing that they don't like with Jesus, that they are um, frustrated by again. And instead of going to Jesus to relay their frustration, they go to his followers. They're hoping to seed some suspicious uh, thoughts in these disciples' minds about their new teacher. They're hoping to uh, sow some seeds of doubt and thwart Christ's plan by going to his followers. But Jesus hears their grumbling, hears their griping and their gossiping. And I love his response to them. Notice 17, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of, of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here, Jesus reaffirms, reestablishes his mission. I am here for the sinners, for the sick in sin. And I love how Jesus here, notice again his logic. Jesus is taking these scribes at their own word. They're protesting Jesus' company. By saying, you're here with some unwholesome people, some untouchable, undesirable people. You're here with some sick folk. As if to say, we are the healthy and whole ones. You should be converting and and consorting with us. And Jesus' response They that are whole have no need for the physician, but they that are sick. I have not come to deal with people who think they're healthy. I've come to deal with people who know they are sick. And better yet, to know that they are terminally sick. I'm here for them. I'm here for the sinners. Such is what Jesus is getting after. He's getting after the fact that unless you admit your need, unless you admit your sickness, he has no business dealing with you. 
These Pharisees were self-righteous to the core. These scribes were self-sufficient to the core. They thought themselves healthy and whole enough in which to presume upon God's presence. And Jesus says, I am a physician. And a physician does not hang around whole people. He hangs around sick people. A doctor who is hanging around healthy people is not being very effective in his mission as a doctor, is he not? A doctor is meant to go to the sick people and heal them and to give them aid and give them medicine. They are only needed by sick people. And such is Jesus' mission. He says, I am needed by these very people. By calling Matthew to follow him, he was boldly demonstrating who he was for. He was for the sinners, for the sick, and he was for uh, forgiving them. For bringing them a remedy which was altogether different than what was being prescribed up until this point. Because unlike the scribes, unlike the, the Pharisees and the religious experts who were uh, predominantly preaching more outward evidences of change. More outward behavioral things Christ was here uh, displaying and calling for an inward reformation of the heart. And he says he does so by offering himself to them. See, Jesus is an altogether different doctor. Yes, he prescribes a medicine, but the medicine is himself. Christ is the very cure for these sin-sick souls. He is the very physician who gives himself as the remedy for their sickness. He is the the very uh, savior who gives himself for our sin. This is who Jesus is. He's the unexpected Messiah who gives himself up for his own people. This, as we saw last week, was Christ's assignment. And here, he's doubling down on that assignment. This is who I'm here for. I'm here for the sick. Not for those who think they are whole. Not for those who are believing and clutching to their pseudo-pretend righteousness. I'm here for those who know that they are sick. And know that they cannot heal themselves. I'm here to be their healing. I'm here to be their forgiveness. And I think about... And I mentioned those curious details, right, about the roof, about uh, the scribes whispering to the Pharisees and what. I mentioned those because I remind you who is probably speaking these words to John Mark. Again, it's the Apostle Peter. Tradition tells us that. And I was thinking one commentator, he said this. The obtuseness of the disciples, as portrayed in the Gospel of Mark, could be a natural result... Of strong reliance on the memories of the most humiliated and perhaps guiltiest of them all. Peter. Why do you think Peter is emphasizing this friend of sinners? Because he knew who he was. Peter knew firsthand what it was like to be a denier of Jesus. He knew firsthand what it was like to need the forgiveness of the Son of God. To need the sinner's friend. Peter knew that firsthand. The one who claims to know Christ, who boldly, as we will get to soon in Mark chapter 8, claims and proclaims that this Jesus is the Christ, would soon later deny that very same Christ. And he would need this very sinner's friend in his own life. Peter knew that. 
Peter knew that in a very real, real way that to be sick with sin, he needed the physician's attention. Perhaps that is you this morning here. As you sit in this church, you are clutching to a pretend righteousness, a pretend expertise on religion that is not real or truthful. Jesus here in this invitation is inviting us to acknowledge our sickness, acknowledge our sin, and likewise acknowledge that he is the healer of that sin. He is our savior and our healer and our unexpected Messiah. Let us pray this morning.